invite you to turn with me in your Bibles for our Old Testament lesson this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Read verses 12 to 22 this morning. I ask that as we hear God's word, that we note the, the, um, the way in which Moses himself here alternates between speaking about the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in verse 12, reading through verse 22. Moses speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord has set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, the God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name shall you swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now turning with me, if you will, to Second Corinthians chapter 5 for our New Testament lesson this morning and our sermon text, verses 11 to 15. Let's actually begin reading in verse 10. As Paul continues this theme of the judgment seat of Christ, as he says, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commanding ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is God's holy word. Let's go before him in prayer. 
Our gracious God and Father, we ask that through the ministry of your word, you would teach us to fear your name, to walk in your ways, and that you would keep us in your love. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I remember when I was in seminary, I lived in Philadelphia for four years, just on the north end of town, and uh, on my afternoons off on occasion when I had those, I really enjoyed cycling down the Wissahickon Trail. If you've never been to Philadelphia, the Wissahickon Trail is this, trail is this, this beautiful brook that runs down through uh, you know, what it looks like a, a kind of a quintessential uh, part of uh, the Mid-Atlantic or New England. It is very picturesque, and it makes its way all the way down from Chestnut Hill, down through the heart of the city, and, and spills out into the river that leads all the way next to uh, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, what you might recognize, the big steps from the first Rocky movie. It's a very beautiful scene, and it was really wonderful uh, to be able to, uh, to enjoy uh, the Lord's creation as I tried to cycle, uh, this, again, this is about 25 pounds ago, as I tried to cycle a couple times uh, a week. Uh, if, you, if you know anything about riding a bike, uh, especially if uh, you're not used to riding a bike, you have to keep both hands on the handlebars. Um, problems persist uh, if you uh, don't know what you're doing and you lose control of the handlebars. I remember I was riding my bike down the Wissickin Trail one day, and there's this guy who was running towards me. This is a place where a lot of people would run and do you know, exercise-y type uh, sorts of things, and this guy's running in my direction. I realized he was a guy that I went to seminary with. It's kind of a real bulky beast of a man, and, uh, and he's running. He goes, oh, hey, Charles. He has a real deep voice. I go, oh, hey, Paul, and as I, I lift up my hand, I do this. I um, only have my left hand on the wheel, and so naturally, I end up driving off into the bushes and flipping off of my bike. It took me uh, several minutes to get up. He had to stop and ask if I was all right, if we had to call an ambulance. It was very embarrassing, uh, or as I like to call it, a day that ends in Y. But what we find here is that Paul this morning speaks of the handlebars of faith, as it were. That when he's talking about that path of faith, and again, he's been talking about the nature of faith for the past uh, few chapters, that faith is extrospective. It is outward-looking, not inward-looking. It looks forward. It is a faith that um, it is the mode of the Christian's experience, his walk, his pilgrimage is a pilgrimage by faith as he makes his destination towards a place that he has not yet seen. Our Lord Jesus himself refers to this path as the straight and narrow. And what we find is that Paul provides two critical concepts to the nature of true and saving faith that serve as handlebars that keep us from driving off into one side of the ditch or the other. Those twin concepts that we need to keep in mind, to keep in focus, as we talk about the nature of faith are this, that of the fear of the Lord, and that of the love of Christ, and that to have one without the other is to drive ourselves into the ditch. You see this here marked out in this paragraph, how Paul speaks of the fear of the Lord in verses 11 to 13, and then in the same breath we'll speak of the fear, or the love of Christ here in verses 14 to 15. So fear and love. We will find that these things are not at odds with one another, but they are a biblical and scriptural tension to keep us on the straight and narrow. We see within our context, again, as backing up just a few verses, that Paul has been speaking in light, not just of the great resurrection hope that we have on the last day, but that we are called to live our lives in light of the final judgment that transpires on the last day. 
So we confessed with our faith together just a few weeks ago what happens when Christ returns. It's very, very simple chain of events. The trump sounds, Christ returns, the dead in Christ shall rise, raised to new bodily life, and then we appear before the judgment seat. And those who are raised to life, who have been united to faith in Christ, will receive their everlasting reward. And those who have spurned their Savior will be raised to everlasting damnation. And Paul says we are to live in light of that final judgment. Everybody here will have to give an account for what he or she has said and done on the last day. The final judgment is not simply a final judgment for the bad guys over there. As Paul says in verse 10, we must all stand and give an account. There's no way to talk yourself out of this corner. There are no bribes that can be paid. There's no way to manipulate, to bully, or to talk up the court of holy justice on that day. As the spotlight of God's Word shines on us, and there is to be found no place to hide. So we'll be exposed for what we are. Will we be clothed? Will we attempt to clothe ourselves in our own righteousness? Or through faith, will we find ourselves clothed with Christ's righteousness? So we considered last week. And the question Paul is pressing upon the church of Corinth is, will you be able to bear under such scrutiny? It's a motivation for personal holiness isn't it? That's Paul's entire point here. And yet here in verse 11, we find that it is not only a motivation for personal holiness, but the fear of the Lord is a motivation for personal evangelism. Notice what he says here, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Judgment is coming. Are you ready? Doesn't sound very nice, does it? A lot of talk these days about being nice and kind, and surely we have to keep those things into account. Paul tells the church of Galatia in uh, Galatians chapter 5 that kindness is, in fact, a spirit-wrought virtue. But we must be careful to distinguish between the kindness as a virtue wrought by the Spirit and the kindness as we see described in schmaltzy TV ads and Hallmark greeting cards. I would imagine this particular scenario with me, that you're a doctor. You have a, doctor, or you have a patient that comes in, and after doing a series of examinations, you find out and you discover that your patient has stage 4 cancer. If they do not get into, treated right away, they will surely die. Which is the kinder response? To say, everything's fine. Pop a couple Advil, make the pain go away. Let's go out for drinks later. Let's grab a meal. I don't want to burden you with bad news. Is that kindness? Or is it kinder to say, unless we get you on the operating table stat, you will surely die. I am saying this for your very soul. That is what Paul is getting at here, that knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing that we must all stand before the judgment seat, we therefore strive to persuade one another's, one another to pursue holiness, 
to find your righteousness in faith in Christ, a righteousness that is received through faith in faith alone. The judgment day is not going to be a walk in the park. There is only one way of salvation from the wrath to come, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other path of salvation. It sounds mean, but it's not. It gives full glory to Christ who has provided the only way for salvation. And it points you to the only remedy for salvation from the wrath to come. What could be kinder than that? Paul will ask the church in Galatia, am I not your friends because I tell you the truth? Why do you keep thinking that I'm an enemy? I say hard things, but I say it for your benefit. Stop pretending like I am your enemy. I am calling you to account before it is too late. Paul here speaks of the fear of God where it's not simply kind of a a holy sense of reverence and silence or awe. It is a legitimate fear that the holy God, the maker of heaven and earth, will call each and every one of us sinners as we are into account. You think of the great prophet Isaiah. The opening of his book is he's given a vision of Christ on the throne and the angel seated around Christ proclaiming holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And what's Isaiah's response? Woe is me for I am a man undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And it is only through the purging of atonement found at the altar that Isaiah's sin is atoned for. It is only through the once for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ that we will be able to survive the coming onslaught. The character of God demands that he is to be feared. As an attribute of God, we do not hear enough of in pulpits around America these days. The whole book of Proverbs centers on this central concept. Where is wisdom to be found? It is not to be found in books. The accumulation of wisdom, obtaining a PhD in philosophy. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. This is the whole sum of the matter. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, fear the Lord and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. As uh, the author of Ecclesiastes looks back on a life where he's pursued every venue, he has pursued uh, earthly wisdom, he has pursued uh, um, uh, frat boy living, and finds none of this amounts to squat. The thing that matters is this, fear the Lord and walk in his ways. Paul standing in Athens delivering this message of the coming judgment and the good news that stands behind it for sinners. The, the, the mention, the offer of amnesty before it is too late. This is what Paul says in Acts 17, that God is now declaring to men that all men everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through one man whom he has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is proof that Christ has been found to be the one true judge of all the earth. Are you ready to stand before him? I mean, to think about it, why would anyone ever turn from their sin if your sin was never to be judged? Accordingly, what greater motivation is there to warn your brothers and sisters, your neighbors, your friends? They will have to give an account one day for the deeds done in the body. Here we find that the fear of the Lord is a motivation not only for personal evangelism, but also for ministry. You see that here in verse 12, where the fear of the Lord is what distinguishes a true minister of the gospel from a false minister of the gospel. Paul says here, I'm not talking about myself. I'm not here to continue uh, to, 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 to boast about myself. I remember sitting in on a seminary class for the entire time, for an hour and a half, and the seminary professors stand up and tell us all about the, uh, the celebrities that he had rubbed shoulders with. Showing us Facebook photos, all the places he'd been, and how important he was. Never telling us about Christ. Paul says, I'm not here to do that. I'm here to give you a criteria so you can distinguish my ministry from my adversaries. So that you can be able to know how to answer those who are teaching falsely. What's the difference? Paul says, here's the difference. Their boast is not in what, ho- what happens in the heart through the work of the Spirit. Rather, their boast is in what? It is in their outward appearance. You recall in chapter 2, Paul has already been addressing his letters and, and uh, his, his adversaries. And in chapters 10 and 12, to 12 he'll begin uh, to, uh, in a really sarcastic way, refer to them as the super apostles. Some translation will have it false apostles, which is good, but Paul really calls them in a really snarky way, the super apostles, these, these men who are writing one another letters of credential, uh, letters of recommendation. They're flashing phony credentials so that they can weasel their way into these various churches so that they can siphon funds off the community uh, tithing bank and treasure chest, as it were. They're snake oil salesmen, men who come to boast in their own religious experiences. Verse 12 says they boast in outward appearances, is what the, how the ESV has it. Quite literally, the text reads, they boast in the face. It's exactly what Paul has been talking about in chapters 3 and 4, hasn't it? That it's only the ministry of the new covenant that begins to work at the heart. Before that, everything else only runs skin deep. For these super apostles, it is not the moral work of the Spirit that matters. Rather, it is the pomp and the show. It is their eloquence. It is the man who can sway crowds by his own charisma and charm. I remember when I was in high school, I was listening to a bootleg uh, concert of, of a Doors album. Uh, and in between songs, Jim Morrison was, uh, uh, was, was talking to the crowds, and I can't remember what it was that he was, he was rambling on mindlessly about. But he was arguing some type of a political cause, and everybody was cheering him on. And without batting an eye, he immediately begins to argue the exact opposite thing. Something to the effect of, you know, for five or six minutes going on, war is bad, war is evil, protesting war, everybody going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he turns around and goes, no, war is good. And how do the people respond? Yeah, they're still rooting for him no matter what he says because he has such charisma. They don't care what it is that he's saying. They're willing to go along with it. Because they're following the man and not the message. 
And this is what Paul's adversaries are doing. They're men who boast in their own ability to sway the crowds by their fancy speech and eloquent rhetoric. Men who boast in their own ecstatic spiritual experiences. They're obsessed with the externals. But Paul has gone to great lengths to advocate that the ministry of the new covenant, its evidence is found in the regeneration of the heart and that the Spirit begins to work repentance in our hearts that we might be more and more gradually conformed to the image of our Savior. How many of us know people that judge spirituality according to external means? Perhaps we ourselves were once like that. Where we reckon that true spirituality consists in some type of mystical experience more than the renewal of the heart by the work of the Spirit. How many of us have friends who ask, we've asked, hey, are you a Christian? Have you put your hope in Christ? And the response is, oh yeah, I, I trust in Jesus. I had a real profound spiritual experience at summer camp one year. Okay. It's, it's not a bad thing to have a, one of those good experiences at a summer youth camp. But you're, you're living with your girlfriend. You're engaging in sinful practices that you shouldn't. There is a certain disconnect. As if God doesn't care about holiness. We often treat spiritual experiences as some type of uh, lucky rabbit's foot. Well, I've prayed the sinner's prayer. Therefore, I might get out of hell free card. Whereas what Paul is looking for, what Scripture looks for, what the Spirit looks for, is saving faith. Do you put your hope in Christ? And is that faith a lively faith that manifests itself in striving to please the Lord. That's the very thing that Paul spoke about in our passage last week. Where our chief aim is not whether or not we live or die, but it is whether or not we please the Lord. Do you not, have, do you not know that you have to give an account for all that you've done? All of it. Do you not fear the Lord? So we find that the fear of the Lord is a strong motivation in Paul's thinking here in these verses for personal holiness, for evangelism for evaluating true spiritual ministry, and also as a litmus test for true spirituality. Verse 13, Paul basically is saying, you want to boast? Fine, if we want to talk about boasting and spiritual experiences, let's play that game. Later on in this letter, Paul will talk about a robust spiritual experience that he had that will put every other spiritual experience to shame. You know what Paul says here is, you know what? I can boast, but that counts for nothing. We're not going to play that game. Paul essentially says, I've had deeper and more meaningful experience, spiritual experiences than you, but that is not the litmus test for true spirituality. I've been beside myself. Spiritual experience is so great, I felt like I was out of my body. But even in those moments, even if we are beside ourselves, Paul says here, that's for God. That is not for you. That is none of your concern. That is not the litmus test for true Christian spirituality. 
And Paul says, so we are in our right minds and we speak coherently for your sakes. It is the fear of the Lord, not uh, quasi-mystical experiences that serve as the beginning of wisdom. Do not be deceived. The work of the Spirit is found in how the Spirit works in our hearts to make us walk in God's ways. Good and legitimate as some spiritual experiences may or may not be, that is not the criterion. There's certainly nothing to boast about. The fear of the Lord is a necessary feature of saving faith. It's a biblical impulse for holy living. But this fear is not an abject slavish fear because it is one that is grounded in the love of Christ. Again, using the analogy of the handlebars of faith, On the one hand, we have the fear of the Lord, and now on the other hand, Paul begins to speak of the love of Christ. As he says here in verse 14, for it is the love of Christ that controls us. Other translations will say it compels us, it hems us in. I've kind of been on a uh, Western uh, TV and movie kick, uh, uh, thanks in part uh, to James, uh, watching uh, cowboys uh, herd buffalo. Uh, uh, I don't even know the words. I'm from Florida. I'm not from the Wild West. But where they're, they're, they're trying to wrangle up uh, even cattle to get into a trailer car. What is it that they do? They hem in the cattle. They get the, the guys on the horses behind them, kind of start pushing them in a certain direction towards a pen where a pen begins to funnel and funnel and funnel, and it slowly gets the cows to go in a single file line to where they finally make it on uh, to, the, to the trailer. That is the image of what Paul has here. It is the love of Christ that hems us in, that puts us on the straight and narrow As soldiers surrounding a besieged city, so Christ's love surrounds us. Here, Paul is not speaking of our love for Christ. Here, Paul is speaking of Christ's love for us. That it is Christ's love that prods us forward and pushes us in a stable direction. It surrounds and confines us. It preoccupies and governs our thoughts and becomes yet another uh, motivating impulse for holy living. It's in this sense that perhaps the handlebar analogy that I gave breaks down. Because here we have the image of a loving father holding his boy on a bicycle, keeping him propped up so he doesn't fall over. And this is the love of Christ that compels us to act as we have. Keep yourselves in the love of Christ, Jude says. Here's the guardian of key, and keeper of Israel who neither slumbers nor sleeps. The one who watches over you day and night. The one who cares for and protects you. But what, just, what simply is the love of Christ, you might ask? And here we find Paul defining and describing the love of Christ in what is perhaps one of the most compact statements of the gospel that we find in the New Testament. For Paul here tells us that the love of Christ is comprehended in the death of Christ. You notice that here at the end of verse 14 and 15, he gives this uh, dual statement speaking of the death of Christ. Therefore, as one man died for all, so we find a dual result. Christ has died for all as our representative. 
dying in our place, bearing our sin for the wrath of God that is justly due us on account of our sins. And he says, therefore, because Christ died, therefore all have died. Died to what? Of course, the here he is speaking of is all who have put their hope in Christ. But Paul answers this elsewhere in Romans chapter 5 and 6. For as one through one man sin entered the world and through sin came death, so now through one man has righteousness come. So that by his death, we have now died to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over his people. That in our baptism, Christ has shattered sin's power over us. That we might no longer be enslaved to sin. That we might no longer be enslaved to our own slavish lusts and carnal desires. Christ has died so that we might live, as it says here in verse 15. That we might live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Because we have died to sin, because sin is no longer our master, we have been now made slaves of another, slaves of righteousness and slaves of Christ. And so now it is the love of Christ for his people that controls us because he is our master. And we are his slaves. And yet more than that, we are his sons and we are his daughters received into adoption through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture says elsewhere that God shows his own love for us, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us as our representative. He bore the curse of the law that we might bear the favor of God, that his face might once again shine upon his people, that we would not see God in his wrath, but God in his fatherly tender care and mercy. Even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, we have been made now alive together with Christ. Paul's point here Simply this, that sin is real. And on account of sin, the wrath of God is coming. And for that, men should fear. But at the same time, God's love is real. And so great is God's love that he sent his son to bear our sins, that we might have a way of escape. That we might be delivered from the wrath to come. That we might find comfort and solace in fellowship and communion with our Savior who died and was raised for us. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that the fear of the Lord would be our starting place for wisdom, that you would teach us to fear your name, and that your love for us, given to us through the gospel, would hem us in and provoke us to further holiness, that by both the fear of the Lord and your love for us, that we would be driven to stay on the straight and narrow as we look forward to that day when our faith will be made sight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.